0: the global population will enter a sustained decline for the first time. So this is kind of just really, for me, kind of a jaw-dropping article for the Times to kind of acknowledge some of the big demographic currents um, underway uh, in and around um, the globe. Now, of course, in response to this Times piece, there are plenty of academics and journalists kind of casting shade on it. Um, The kind of what I call like the population Panglossians, just sort of, you know, telling us that we shouldn't really be concerned about these demographic changes. But I think if you take a careful look at one of the places uh, where this has been unfolding in recent decades, uh, Japan, the place that I call the land of the setting sun, I think you might have a different perspective on this uh, than some of the critics of, of the New York Times piece, because Japan is now a country... Um, that is shrinking by more than 500,000 people every year as they're seeing more deaths um, than births, uh, many more deaths than births in Japan. And so phrases like, I think, you know, economic stagnation um, are appropriate for Japan. Uh, Phrases like runaway deficits are appropriate words in describing what's happening to Japan's uh, fiscal uh, picture. Um, But for me, kind of, I think more importantly, we're seeing from a kind of a sociological perspective in Japan is sort of evidence of kind of increased loneliness um, in Japan among both young adults and especially among older adults. Um, And we're also seeing, I think because of that, um, a sense of despair among many Japanese citizens, uh, many Japanese men and women. Um, And again, surprisingly enough, this sort of came through in a different New York Times story uh, that appeared in 1997 profiling a kind of a generation of living alone. Older Japanese men and especially women kind of living by the thousands um, in complexes across uh, Japan, uh, you know, know, by themselves. And according to this New York Times story, you know, many of these Japanese women and men um, are living lives in the final chapter um, of their lives where they're not visited regularly by, by friends and by family because they often don't have many family members to come and see them. And you know, one of the most striking dimensions of this story about uh, older Japanese uh, men and women was that there are a good number of people um, who are dying alone and are not discovered uh, for, for days, uh, for weeks, and even months Um, And because of this phenomenon of sort of isolated older Japanese people uh, without uh, friends and family to kind of be there for them, there's even a company that has emerged in specializing in cleaning up decomposing remains, as this, you know, quote in front of you indicates. It's kind of a a pretty sobering picture of how demographic decline um, and family decline can play out in one modern country across across the Pacific. Now, in the face of these demographic currents, in the face of sort of shifting family fortunes, we are seeing some countries, I think, waking up to the challenges confronting them and and taking steps. So in China, for instance, in the last year, we've seen um, just this week uh, an announcement they're going to be lifting their birth limits. um, And I think they're going to be kind of completely getting rid of them the next year or two would be my guess. Um, And they're also offering new tax and housing benefits to parents um, to kind of reverse their demographic fortunes. Um, They've pushed through a new divorce policy to try to minimize divorce in China in the last year. And they have even introduced just this this year, a new masculinity curriculum uh, targeting their teenage uh, boys to kind of strengthen um, the, the kind of the uh, the culture around masculinity among Chinese and that they don't want to have the kind of South Korean thing that we've seen you know pop up in recent decades. So some countries, I think, in the face of these tremendous shifts, are beginning to rethink how they approach family life, both kind of policy wise and cultural wise as well. So how is the U.S. to kind of turn to our our country? How is the U.S. for you know faring these, di- these days, family wise? I think the picture here in the U.S. is pretty sobering as well. Um, We've seen the marriage rate hit record lows uh, last year. And now um, only about one in two American adults are married is probably going to know. We've also seen our fertility rate hit a record low last year. I think it's going to come down even more uh, this year in 2021. So our current TFR, our fertility rate is 1.64. That means there are about 1.64 babies now being born per the average American woman. You know, what's striking about that particular statistic is that our fertility rate, you know, basically right now is lower than the fertility rate in Japan in 1988, you know, as Japan was sliding to a TFR of 1.2 a little bit later. So, you know, we really are, I think, at a kind of turning point here in the U.S. when it comes to families. And again, as probably many of you know, these sort of family changes have been most consequential in some ways in recent years for working class and poor families. So on the fertility front, for instance, what we've seen is that sort of the decline in fertility in the last decade has been most salient for working class and poor Americans. Uh, They're the ones who've seen their fertility rates fall the most. Um, That's an important point to kind of bear in mind when I come back to sort of Republican policy. Uh, responses to all this. Um, the, also, we've seen you know, a, a major retreat for marriage um, in this country. This retreat has been really focused actually more among working class Americans. I'm using education here as a proxy, but if you look at Americans who have just got a high school degree or some college, just huge declines in marriage um, since the 70s. And what that means is that our teenagers, for instance, um, have kind of experienced um, the biggest decline in stable marriage in working-class communities um, compared to poor, which already had pretty low levels of family stability, uh, really from the the 70s, um, and compared especially to more educated um, and affluent communities who've kind of maintained a fairly high level of family stability um, in recent years. So again, the point I'm making here is that the family shifts we're talking about today have hit particularly poor working class Americans, especially hard. Um, and we should be thinking about that obviously as we kind of move towards a policy agenda. Now, in terms of just thinking about this, you know, through the lens of partisanship, um, which I'll do a bit today, I think it's fair to say that Republican leaders have talked, again, they've talked a good game, about families since the 1980s. And I mean, I can remember President Reagan sort of touching on family themes regularly in, in powerful ways. At the same time, though, I think it's also fair to say that Republicans too often have kind of had basically a a, a no when it comes to sort of advancing concrete family policies, you know, from their vantage point. You know, too often there's been kind of an empty handed approach uh, to family policy. There's really nothing on offer from Republicans. And we can see this even, I think, this year uh, when Governor, for instance, Nikki Haley had a piece um, just last month in National Review online about family policy. And, you know, from her perspective, it was all about kind of welfare reform and not having families getting trapped in poverty. You know, no no recognition, I think, on her part that it's not 1996. You know, things have changed a lot since then. And she had really nothing concrete to offer working and middle class families who are struggling often times today to afford to have kids and to afford to raise kids. So again, too many, I think, Republicans are kind of stuck in a, a Reagan-style approach to thinking about uh, public policy, where you kind of want to just sort of talk a good game but not actually advance the ball when it comes to real family policies for you know working in middle class families across the country so does that mean that sort of the democratic alternative is better um and you know i have to say that from my vantage point i think the answer is no i don't see um the democratic uh, approach in this case thinking concretely about the american families plan being better and that's because i think democrats not all of course but many are too to kind of a statist approach to public policy, where there's a dire- desire to give the state ever more power, ever more authority, ever more spending when it comes to uh, kids and families. Uh, we can think, for instance, of the way in which the Biden American Families Plan now wants to have our kids in public schools from basically you know, age three to 18. So for 14 years, kind of giving over a tremendous degree of kind of power, influence, and authority um, to our public schools. Of course, given what happened the last year, I think you know, it's a questionable um, you know, call on the part of um, Biden and his team. There's also a way in which um, I think Democrats and progressives, unfortunately today, are more, what I would say, are more workist. And what I mean by that term is there's a kind of this idea that work is the source and summit of our lives. Um, that work is where we get our status, our meaning, even our happiness, um, you know, more so than family, more so than faith, et cetera. Um, And this was given kind of explicit voice by Susan Rice, um, the White House domestic policy advisor, in talking about the American Families Plan. She said about it, she said, quote, we want parents to be in the workforce, especially mothers. So kind of, again, sort of signaling this sort of high regard for, you know, for paid work um, on the part of many Democrats and progressives. And so I think this, is, you know, this perspective, this kind of statist and workers perspective informs why the Biden administration is pushing a plan which would spend more than 400 billion dollars on massively expanding daycare, uh, massively expanding pre-K, you know, as this slide here indicates. Now, why would we wanna say no to this dimension of the American Families Plan? Um, much that could be said here, but just four quick things for us to think about. The first is kind of think deeply about Quebec's experience with expanding um, daycare, with advancing universal daycare in Quebec. And I've got two voices to highlight here. One is Matthew Iglesias and one is Jonathan Gruber. Of course, these are noted right-wing journalists and scholars, right? Well, of course, we know that they're not. Um, But in kind of writing about Quebec's um, push in 1997 to massively expand childcare, Matthew Iglesias um, basically made the point that these, this is their, their centerpiece of the program was a guarantee of daycare spots for all Quebec parents for the extremely low price of five dollars a day. It goes on to add the intention was to provide this via subsidies to high-quality nonprofit daycare centers. In practice, however, there simply weren't enough spots and high-quality facilities to meet demand. So the point here simply is that when Quebec expanded daycare on a massive basis. They, they sent you know, more than 100,000 kids in the province out of their families and into paid childcare. And as scholars like Jonathan Gruber at MIT and his colleagues kind of evaluated, what they found was that this massive push to kind of move kids from home care or family care to daycare um, led to this result, in Gruber's words, "quote cohorts with increased childcare access, subsequently had worse health, lower life satisfaction, and higher crime rates later in life. Okay, so what he's saying is the kids who were exposed to this um, were more likely to experience social and emotional problems, actually both as younger kids and as teenagers. And then the boys, um, in his words, quote, were more likely to have the impacts on criminal activity um, are concentrated in boys. So again, the boys exposed to this um, are more likely to end up in trouble with the law um, uh, in Quebec. So not exactly a a sterling record when it comes to sort of this approach to to caring for our youngest kids. And you may wonder, well, what's the sort of the relevance of all this for American kids? Well, when you look at kind of the research in the US, what you find, is that infants and young children who have a lot of non-parental care, especially in that first year of life, um, you know, spend a lot of time in in daycare and in paid childcare, are experiencing worse outcomes. Um, We see, for instance, that uh, young kids uh, in daycare have elevated uh, risks of cortisol, um, which, as you probably know, is a stress hormone. So that means that, you know, when little kids are in a daycare setting, they're more likely to be stressed out Um, compared to being at home. And then when you track them, as the NICH did, um, tracking thousands of kids across the U.S., including Charlottesville um, Charlottesville kids, um, what they found is that kids who spent a lot of time in daycare as young children um, were more likely to experience uh, social and emotional problems at age four. And that's what this figure here um, is showing us. And then also more likely as teenagers to experience um, problems with drinking, drugs, um, delinquency and other at-risk activities um, to use the sort of technical jargon. So again, it's a, it's a story that's kind of similar you know, to what we see in, um, in Quebec. And this NICHD study also found that um, there was a kind of a dosage effect here for little kids, infants. Um, that held even when they were placed in high quality centers. So lots of time away from parents um, was linked to worse outcomes for kids um, when they were apart from their families at a very young age. Okay. Now, okay, so that's that's just a word about sort of the child well-being angle, but I want to talk too just about the, the parents here and sort of parent perspectives on this. And what's striking here is that um, our work family policy discussions are driven by well-educated white people. You know, we've We've done a brief on this at IFS that kind of articulates this at greater length. But when you kind of look beyond the preferences of well-educated white people, what you see is that many American parents, um, you know, many ordinary American parents, middle-income, lower-income parents, and many Hispanic parents, as this figure here suggests, uh, don't prefer full-time uh, childcare for their own young children. Um, they prefer family care for their young kids. Um, in fact, the majority of parents across the U.S. prefer to have their kids cared for either by a parent or by a, you know, a member of their extended family. Um, and I had this perspective articulated to me when I spoke to Andrea Nunez last week. She's a 25-year-old mom in St. Petersburg, Florida, and she's been relying upon her own mother and her own mother-in-law. And you know, kind of from her vantage point, um, you know, when you have a baby, um, you know, it's, it's just harder to trust a childcare worker uh, because they can't look after your child, as she says here on this, this quote on the screen, um, in the same way that a grandparent can, you know, that a grandma is going to give more attention, more love, and more care to that baby um, than, you know, than a worker at a child care center, okay? So, again, this is the kind of perspective that I think many ordinary American parents have when it comes to work family policy. Unfortunately, through the New York Times, through the Washington Post, if you read many other legacy media publications, you don't kind of typically get this perspective articulated, but it is one that's held by um, a majority of American parents today, and this is based upon a recent American Compass uh, UGov survey that we were um, spotlighting in our brief. Um, and in fact, on that same survey, what we we see is that you know, yes, elites tend to prefer workers policies like daycare and, and paid leave but ordinary Americans are more likely to prefer direct cash, you know, assistance or cash allowances for, you know, for their families um, and also wage subsidies, um, as opposed to things like, like daycare, as um, again, this American Compass YouGov survey uh, showed us uh, uh, in a survey of parents uh, this year. Okay, so I've kind of, I've, Race of concerns about Biden's approach. Um, And so what should we say yes to when it comes to American family policy? Well, you know, I think it's important as we kind of think about uh, kind of a guiding perspective, a worldview here that we should have kind of what I would say is a familist agenda. Um, And what I mean by that is an agenda that seeks to maximize the family's authority, its functions, its kind of its activities, you know, in its kids' lives, the amount of time the parents spend with their kids and with one another and also their financial resources. We've got to be real here about money. Money matters for families um, when it comes to the bearing and rearing of, of the next generation. And of course policies should be strengthening rather than penalizing marriage as many of our uh, tax and transfer policies in America now do. So I'm in favor of family allowance. It would look something like this where you would be giving about $4,000 um, to families per child. Um, I would give more money to younger kids than older kids, um, you know, given the way in which parents often are at home with younger kids uh, more than older kids. Um, I would also have it be paid out monthly to cover kind of expenses as they come up, um, you know, for uh, rearing kids, whether it's rent, mortgage, whatever. Um, I would look for policies that don't penalize marriage, um, as unfortunately like the EITC and Medicaid tend to do for many working-class families today. And I look for a policy that covers a broad swath of American families, particularly, of course, working in middle class families uh, struggling to make uh, ends meet today. Um, and as I'm sure everyone here knows, um, there are a number of new conservative proposals, um, you know, from Senator Hawley to uh, Senator Romney to uh, Senators Lee and Rubio, that I think you know, basically in their different ways kind of meet the bar that I just, that I just set. Um, in, that last, um, uh, in that last slide. Um, and they do so by providing substantial resources to families and by doing this without penalizing marriage. You know, two key kind of criteria for me thinking about family policy today. Um, and I would also add too, that I think it's really time for, um, and speaking this here in a partisan note, Republicans to find a compromise vehicle on uh, family allowances to kind of come together, coalesce around one plan. There's something kind of clear, concrete, and constructive to offer to the American people. And, you know, in some ways we could think about how uh, the proposal from Orrin Cass and King uh, at American Compass kind of is potentially a place where Republicans could find common ground on a family allowance. Um, but I want to say also it's important for us not to just think only about family allowances. There are other things that we should be thinking about as sort of policies that would be helpful to working in middle-class families in America. You know policies related like reforming the EITC so it doesn't penalize marriage and maybe is paid out on a monthly basis. Um, things like obviously really rethinking uh, you know, school choice in a day and age when our public schools have failed us in so many um, pathways. It's also, I think just on that note, important to note, IFS did a report last year with AI, and we found that kids who are attending private schools today are much more likely to be marrying successfully later in life. So just one more reason for us to kind of rethink this whole educational sector uh, with an eye towards uh, family formation, family stability. Of course, working to end marriage penalties in big programs like Medicaid and the ITC, and then also when it comes to education, higher education, doing a lot more to um, defund uh, much of higher education and fund more generously uh, vocational education, apprenticeship training programs that give working class and adults um, a shot at the American dream and a shot at um, establishing a, a good paying job that would make for um you know, more confidence when it comes to getting married and having kids. So these are the kinds of policies that we should be saying yes to in terms of trying to strengthen our families going forward. Now, the last thing that I'm gonna say before I conclude is that, you know, if we, and I'm just saying conservatives, you know, and I'm, I'm a conservative, uh, do nothing. If we just sort of stood on our hands um, and we give the American public nothing when it comes to constructive family policies to help working middle-class families that are, who are struggling, I think we have to end up basically saying yes <laughs> to progressive uh, policies that would be much more statist and workist. That would be trying to maximize the time that parents spend in the workforce and also maximize the time that they the kids spend in daycare and in school. Um, and I think, from you know my vantage point, these are much less uh, family friendly. Um, and so I think it's better to say yes than the policies that renew marriage and family life in America, kind of give us a shot at sort of reviving our marriage rate and our fertility rate. Um, and more importantly, kind of giving um, more American young adults kind of uh, renewed hope about um, you know, having and raising kids um, today. And, you know, I, I wanna close here with a story. Um, and it's a story from ironically enough, Senator Warren herself um, about kind of thinking about these issues today. she said, um, she said all the while ago, she said, one day I picked up my son, Alex from daycare and found that he had been left in a dirty diaper for who knows how long, I was upset with the daycare, but more than anything, angry with myself for failing my baby. At the end of my rope, I called my 78-year-old aunt B. Two days later, she arrived at the airport with seven suitcases and a pekingese named Buddy, and stayed for 16 years. And Senator Warren goes on to talk about how Aunt B, you know, played a central role in caring for her young kids at the time. Um, And, you know, from my vantage point, I think that new proposals from Senators Hawley, Lee, Romney and Rubio, um, you know, would give families the financial freedom to rely more on a mother, a father or another family member, you know, including the likes of Aunt Pete because uh, these proposals prioritize, you know, cash for families over childcare for kids. And you know, it's my firm conviction that all Americans should have the option to make the choice that Senator Warren made uh, when caring for their own young kids, um, the choice to have a family member care for uh, their own young kids. So I hope that everyone here um, on this Zoom call can work towards forging a future where policies, uh, family policies um, make such a family friendly future possible um, here uh, in America.